Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear your word that we might embrace and always hold fast to the joyful hope of everlasting life, which you have given to us in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Among Protestants in general and Evangelicals in particular, there is a tendency to undervalue the Lord's Supper or the Holy Communion. It's not that we don't think it's important, we really do. It's just that often we treat it as secondary to preaching and the ministry of the Word. And though we might read a sermon text before church and might reflect on it or, and discuss it after church, we don't typically give the Lord's Supper the same sort of attention. But historically, this has not always been so. You might remember last year that Adam reminded us of the importance of the Lord's Supper by reading from the prayer book. And he read a notice of pending Holy Communion and an exhortation to prepare for it diligently. It's there on page 112 and 13 of the prayer book. Check it out when you get a chance. At the very least, it reminds us that in the past, many Christians understood that both the sermon and the supper are of primary importance. Important enough for them to be diligent in preparing for Holy Communion and even practicing post-communion devotions. Within our own tradition, such practices may seem almost quaint. Nevertheless, if as evangelicals we routinely ignore or dismiss such practices as merely traditional piety, then we run the risk of dumbing down the Lord's Supper and treating it as an optional extra. Perhaps we're shaped more than we know by our reactionary tradition. For being Protestant, by definition, it makes us to be those who protest. Our impulse is to shy away from anything that might seem characteristically Roman Catholic. After all, they do consider the Mass and the Eucharist, as they call it, as their central act of worship. Unfortunately, they also attach to it some misconception, and for many, even superstition. It is my hope that as a church and a parish, we shall rightly value both the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the sacrament. Not as parallel streams of truth that never come together, but as complementary ministries of the Gospel, each affirming and reinforcing the other. It's not coincidental that in our church, whoever preaches the Word would normally also lead the communion service. But before I go on to talk more about communion, I need to back up and go back to first principles. When God made humans, he did so that we might live in eternal fellowship with him. To love him, adore him and serve him. And that was to be our greatest delight. Within his creative goodness, God did for us what he did not do for the angels. He gave us a body and a soul. He then set us to live our lives a little lower than the angels for now, but in preparation for an endless transfigured life, higher than the angels in a world to come. God gave us bodies so that we might experience and enjoy other people 
in a way that angels cannot. Our bodily experiences, therefore, and our capacity to enjoy the imaginative should awaken within us an awareness of God in everything that's good and worthwhile. And more than that, every good and glorious perception that we have should not be an end in itself, but should stir up within us the hope of more to come. Thus the physical world in which we live and the processes of body and mind by which we appreciate this world are means whereby God engages with us. Through the physical, God reveals his reality to us. And through the physical, God draws the reality of worship from us. And that's how it's meant to be. Our bodies are not prisons that entomb our immortal souls. And the physical universe is not a lower order reality from which we shall be translated into a higher order heaven. Through the physical is how God related to Israel in the Passover and in circumcision. And it's how he relates to us in baptism and the Lord's Supper. In these contexts, God chooses to designate material objects as spiritually significant signs, signs of his intention to bless us. And that's what the Lord's Supper is to us. It's a sign always accompanied with words. It's a sign that assures us that what the symbols represent is as real as the physical presence of the symbols. Now how the church expresses that truth is to say that all the created universe is sacramental. And the significant signs, such as baptism and the Lord's Supper, are sacraments. Mainstream Christianity has for centuries used the word in this way. Once again, however, I'm getting ahead of myself and I need to backtrack. What complicates and indeed distorts God's sacramental engagement with humanity is the problem of sin. We know that sin brings us under God's judgment, but it also twists our human nature out of shape. Our hearts have an inbuilt distaste for godliness. Our natural sense of God's glory in creation, well, it's blunted. It's now possible to consider the heavens and the created universe and not hear its declaration of God's glory. But God has a saving plan. And his plan is to reform a new humanity, a covenantal community which he calls the church. And his strategy to do that is centred on the Lord Jesus Christ, on his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his transforming Holy Spirit, and eventually his eternal rule. Now most of the plan is finished at the cross. What awaits is the final consummation. The time when Jesus will return in glory to set up his physical kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But in the meantime, as we wait, Jesus has commanded that we observe the Holy Communion. Because Holy Communion is the sign to us 
of Christ's own saving ministry for us. If you want to stay in touch with God, then by all means read the Bible and pray. But the Holy Communion is a gift to us that recognises that we are both spiritual and physical beings. The Lord's Supper symbolises for us that our relationship with the Father has been restored and that our moral nature is now being untwisted. And as our relationship with God matures, then seeing God's wisdom, love and glory in the created universe becomes easier and easier. If baptism is a sacrament of cleansing and initiation, then the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of sustenance and continuance. It's like food for our spiritual souls. When we read the accounts in the Synoptic Gospels, and here in 1 Corinthians 11, it's clear that the background for the Lord's Supper is the Jewish Passover meal. And the words that Jesus uses make, make it clear that the bread and wine are a pledge of the reality of Christ's saving work on the cross. When Paul speaks of what he received from the Lord in verse 23, he's talking about what the apostles told him directly. And in verse 25, he tells us something that the Gospels do not tell us. He says, do this whenever you drink it. And by this, Jesus meant that the Lord's Supper is to be repeated just as ordinary meals are repeated. The language of the Lord's Supper is very familiar to us and fairly straightforward. Historically, however, it's been understood in very different ways. So it's worthwhile making a few comments about that. Firstly, when Jesus says, this is my body, or this is the new covenant in my blood, he means that the bread and wine are symbols or signs, and nothing more literal than that. Jesus' words do not supernaturally make the bread and the wine into something more or something other than what they are. In pointing to the bread and wine as his body and blood, Jesus was not describing the physical reality of what was yet to be. He was presenting them as symbols of what he was pledging. And what he was pledging was no less than the sacrifice of himself, his own body and blood, for the remission of our sins. To misunderstand this leads to the belief and practice that the supposedly consecrated bread and wine constitute the real and physical presence of Jesus. And though such an understanding of real presence has been around for a long time, it's neither biblically warranted nor devotionally fruitful. The Roman Church describes it as transubstantiation. The Lutherans describe it as consubstantiation. The Eastern Orthodox and Anglo-Catholics simply describe Christ's presence in the bread and wine as mysterious, though nonetheless objectively real. Now I'm persuaded that any physical notion of real presence is a mistaken understanding. And to have a mistaken theological belief is one thing, 
But inevitably, it leads to a mistaken practice. So, for example, if Christ is physically present in the bread and wine, then any other experience of Christ is simply second-rate. Why settle for a merely spiritual reality when you can have the full-blown physical reality to boot? Whenever real presence is taken to be physical, it invariably generates superstition about the Lord's Supper. And that always functions to weaken our everyday experience of faith. Truth is that through the Holy Spirit, Christ is always present to bless us in the full reality of all that he is. Any physical doctrine of real presence will simply work to overshadow this, if not obscure it altogether. Another set of words that may be problematic are the blood of the covenant. Sounds rather gory. So much so that the first century Romans typically accused Christians of being cannibals. But clearly it's a reference to God's covenant with Moses and the people of Israel. And Jesus is now applying the phrase, blood of the covenant, to himself and the new covenant. In the new covenant, Christ's once for all sacrifice for sin replaces the repeated sacrifices of the Old Testament. True holiness now comes, not by any external ritual, but by the Holy Spirit changing hearts and minds on the inside. The third phrase that's easily misunderstood is, in remembrance of me. Now that sounds like a call not to forget. And certainly it's no less than that. But remembrance is much, much more. Remembrance is also an opportunity for us to renew our gratitude for grace, our confidence in forgiveness, our hope of glory, and our strength for service. Most of this, however, the Corinthians had seemingly lost sight of. Their behaviour at the Lord's Supper was thoughtless, it was lawless, and it was loveless. Some were drunk and gluttonous at the Lord's table, and others went hungry. And Paul's initial response is to remind them how important the Lord's Supper truly is. And he does this by pressing upon them some historical realities. Jesus' words at the Lord's Supper, which he quotes in verses 24 and 25, would have us both to look back and to look forward. Back to the crucifixion at Calvary, and forward to the day when we shall feast with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. In looking back, we should contemplate Calvary and all that it means for us. For Calvary is God's guarantee to us that sin's penalty has been paid, that reconciliation with the Father is now achieved, that forgiveness is now made available for all who believe, that our permanent security with a God is assured and that Satan has now been decisively defeated. The foundation that Calvary lays is for a full-scale restoration under Christ. And what Christ will restore is this entire sin-scarred and sin-marred universe. <laughs>
What Christ achieved at Calvary, therefore, is ever central in our remembrance of him and our communion with him. And we continue to do that until he comes again. So the Lord's Supper points us not only back to Calvary, but forward to that great and glorious day when Christ will quite literally come to take every believer to himself, either at the future coming for judgment or at the moment of our death. As well as looking back and looking forward, the Lord's Supper also has a present reality that makes it important. As Paul says in chapter 10, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And what's clear from these words is that eating the bread and drinking the wine symbolises our present participation in Christ's redemptive death and his resurrection life. Paul makes the same point in Galatians when he says that you've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ who now lives in you. And because we're united with Christ, we are also inextricably united to one another. Again, in chapter 10, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The symbolism of the Lord's Supper therefore teaches us that not only are we united with him and each other, we are also, by our union with Christ, being fed and nourished by Christ. As I mentioned earlier, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of sustenance and continuance. It's like food for our spiritual souls. As the words of invitation to communion express it, come, let us take this holy sacrament of the body and blood of Christ in remembrance that he died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith with thanksgiving. The Lord's Supper then is a vital encounter between Christ himself and every one of us, between Christ and all who purpose to worship him in spirit and in truth. Expectant reverence, therefore, is the temper of our communion service. Little wonder, then, that Paul's words to the disorderly Corinthians are so startlingly strong. At verse 27, he says, Whoever eats bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 29, Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, these are not words to forget in a hurry. These are words that warn us to take seriously the importance of the Lord's Supper. Self-remembrance and reflection are the thoughts and concerns that fill our minds when we come to the Lord's table. Then we can see the point of Paul's admonition in verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. Now this does not mean that only sinless perfection makes us worthy to receive Holy Communion. But it does mean that humility should be the disposition of our hearts. As the prayer of humble access reminds us, we do not presume to come to your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, 
but in your manifold and great mercies. For this reason then, as we come to the table, we are reverent and properly prepared to focus on Christ our Lord. We need to be honest and penitent about ways in which we fall short. We need to ask the Lord for any new orders that he has for us and for new strength to do better. And we need to express gratitude for grace received just as heartily as we can. And our liturgy, our prayer book, helps us to do exactly that. Sin is addressed in our corporate confession. Grace is made clear by a prayer that proclaims forgiveness, followed by the words of assurance. And faith is expressed as a response to God's assurance of forgiveness. You know the refrain, lift up your hearts, for we lift them to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give him thanks and praise. And in receiving the bread and the wine, what's confirmed to every believer is the pledge of Christ's saving work for us on the cross of Calvary. So, going back to where I started, I want to draw two conclusions from what we've understood so far. Firstly, I want to say that the Lord's Supper in our services should be understood and practiced as a central reason for us to gather in worship. I certainly don't mean to imply for a moment that the exposition of God's word is any less important. But I do want us to understand that both word and sacrament are not different realities, but rather are complementary ministries of the gospel, each affirming and reinforcing the other. Therefore, let us value one as we would the other and not see either as a substitute for the other. The second and final application that I wish to draw is that the Lord's Supper should be a paradigm for us on how best to understand Christian fellowship and hospitality. As Christians, we understand that every table we sit down to is the Lord's table. There's nothing we have that is not received from him. Every blessing and every moment we enjoy, we do so in his presence and at his goodwill. Every one of us are as guests in what we might otherwise suppose to be our own home. And therefore an invitation to fellowship and hospitality is akin to an invitation to enter into the kingdom of God and the blessings of God's grace. To sit at table, therefore, in fellowship with one another, or in hospitality with our neighbour, would quite naturally be an invitation to hear from God in the reading of his word, and to speak to God in prayers of praise and thanksgiving. Reading God's word and praying together should be as natural to us in our fellowship and hospitality as it is in the Lord's Supper. When that is so, then our discipleship and evangelism will be enlarged during the week and our Holy Communion will be enriched on Sunday. Each one does complement the other. Let us pray. In the words of Thomas Cranmer, 
the mighty and ever-living God. We thank you that in Holy Communion you graciously feed us with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And assure us of your favour and goodness towards us, that we are true members of the body of your Son, the blessed company of all the faithful and also heirs through hope of your eternal kingdom by the merits of the most precious death and passion of your dear Son. So we humbly beseech you, Heavenly Father, so to assist us with your grace that we might continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as you have prepared for us to walk in. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be all honour and glory, now and forever. Amen. Amen.